You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. And now, O Father, in this hour, would you open our hearts and our minds to receive your word, and may the glory of your Son be made present and manifest in our eyes. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let me read to you this morning from the first three verses of Psalm 98. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. I've been buried in the Psalms uh, this semester at Beeson Divinity School. Our, our chapel series is given to the Psalms. I'm teaching a course in the Divinity School right now on the history of Bible interpretation. And we spent the first half of the semester reading through St. Augustine on the Psalms. It's, it's just been rich. Um, Augustine, when he was converted to the faith in the late 4th century, he says this in his confessions about the Psalms. I wanted to read this to you this morning. My God, how I cried to you when I read the Psalms of David. Songs of faith, utterances of devotion, which allowed no pride of spirit to enter in. I was but a beginner in authentic love of you. But how I cried out to you in those Psalms, and how they kindled my love for you. I like to tell my students that the book of Psalms is the divinity school of the Bible. It's the little seminary in the Bible. It's the formation of the soul on display from beginning all the way uh, to the end. And I I don't want to lose you this afternoon uh, in the details, but if you've ever taken time to look at the way the Psalms are laid out in your Bibles, you've noticed that the Psalms are separated into five books so that the shape of the Psalms actually tell us something about how they're to be read. The Psalms mirror the five books of Moses. The Psalms mirror in their shape the Pentateuch. So they're meant to tell us, even in the way in which the Psalms have been put together, that God is instructing us in the Psalms. He's teaching us. He's teaching us how to talk to Him. He's teaching us that, similar to any human relationship, the silent treatment is deadly. God wants us talking to Him in all the circumstances of our lives, even if the language that we use with God is at times rather risky. So what are the Psalms doing? The Psalms are addressing perennial questions about suffering and sin, confusion and laughter. We can't even get out of the first Psalm before we find the most basic question of human existence addressed. What does it mean to be fortunate or happy? What does existence look like in the light of God's shining face on us? This is the question, by the way, that have been raised by philosophers since philosophers have been raising questions. Is life worth living? What does it mean to be happy? 
And where is the ultimate good to be found? And we can't even get out of Psalm 1 without this question being addressed. How blessed is the one whose mind and affections are given to God's word. They love it. They yearn for God's word to shape their existence. They meditate on it. They chew on it. And they delight in it so that their whole person desires God's word. It's more desirable than gold and it's sweeter than the honeycomb. They say with the Amos the prophet, God, if you bring a famine of bread and water, that's okay. But don't bring a famine of your word. I read recently that Yale University this semester recorded its largest enrollment for a single class in that university's long and noble history. You want to know the topic of the course? Happiness. Psalm 1 leans into this enormous question at the beginning of the Psalter and begins with this exclamation and this explanation. How blessed is the person who doesn't walk or stand or sit with the ungodly, but they delight and they meditate on God's law, on God's instruction, perhaps better, God's word. They do it day and night. So if someone were to ask you, what book of the Bible would you like to take on a deserted island? I think you'd be in good company if you answered the Psalms. Because the Psalms take all of life lived, and they place it before the presence of God. And the Psalms refuse us something. They refuse us a basic human instinct that I think all of us have. And that's the instinct to to, uh, partition our lives into various parts. I have my professional life. I have my domestic life. I have my recreational life. And I have my religious life. And the Psalmist will not allow us such tidy compartments of our living separating our religious facet to one area of our lives. Why? Because for the psalmist, to live is to praise, and to praise is to live. In Israel and the church's life, the praise of God is not compartmentalized to one area of our lives, our religious lives. Rather, praise is at the center of our being. It's at the core of our existence. And even when we suffer in the psalms, We are on a dangerous yet inviting journey toward praise. To live is to praise, and to praise is to live. Or in the familiar words from morning prayer, that we show forth thy praise not only with our lips, but in our lives. So what do we see going on in the Psalms? They're directing all aspects of our identity and all the moments of our lives Godward. They're moving us up. And like St. Augustine from so long ago, the Psalms know that human beings, you and me, we are creatures of desire. But our desires have been infected by sin. And we go around looking for things to assuage our hunger. We're panting after something. And in the words of C.S. Lewis, we are far too easily pleased. Like children who play in the mud when we've been offered a holiday at the sea. When we replace the creaturely gifts that God gives us in this life with God, when we replace those creaturely gifts with God himself, we turn goods into ultimate ends, and our desires get all out of whack. So all of our desires kind of remain disordered in this life. 
because we're sinners and we're we're in need of the continued gift of repentance. But the Psalms, the Psalms are ready made for me and for you for this life of repentance to shape our lives Godward again and again and again. I was uh, reading, uh, been reading a lot on the Psalms lately, and I stumbled across a book that's been on my shelf, and I'm embarrassed to say I hadn't engaged it very thoroughly. It's C.S. Lewis's reflection on the Psalms. They're really essays uh, that are sparked by various forms of the Psalms that we find in our Bibles. And I ran across this quote. Um, Bear with me. It's long, but I'd like to read this to you. This is what C.S. Lewis says about praise and praise in our lives. He says, the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of praise in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. But I never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise, unless shyness or the fear of boring other people is brought in to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers are praising their mistresses. Readers, their favorite poets. Walkers, praising the countryside. Players, praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praised the most, while the cranks, the misfits, and the malcontents, they praised the least. The good critics found something to praise in many imperfect works. The bad critics continually narrowed the books we might be allowed to read. The healthy and unaffected person even if luxuriously brought up and widely experienced in good cookery, could even praise a very modest meal. But the dyspeptic and the snob, they found fault with it all. Except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise what they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist is telling everyone to praise God, and in doing so, telling us to do what all people do when they speak about what they care of. When you love someone or something, Lewis is telling us, then you can't help but erupt in praise. Or in the words of Isaac Watts, let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. So the psalmist from beginning to end is helping us direct all of our lives Godward so that our whole existence is one of praise in our lips and in our lives. Can I read you another prayer this morning from morning prayer? We bless thee for our creation, for preservation, and all the blessings of this life. And the psalmist hears that prayer, and the psalmist says, yes, that's right. All the blessings of this life 
are fuel for the praise of God, who is the ultimate good of our existence. Even if your seven- and eight-year-old baseball team won their season opener last night, it's ultimately for the praise of God. Sorry I slipped that in. It's a true story. (laughs) Augustine and C.S. Lewis are shouting amen from their graves at this prayer from morning prayer. But the prayer continues. I want you to take notice of this language from morning prayer because it reflects the pattern of the Psalms. Listen to this. We bless thee for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life. But above all, for thine inestimable love and the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ. But above all, Because all the blessings of this life, they they pale in comparison to the inestimable love of God shown to us in Jesus Christ. And the psalmist talks this way. Listen to Psalm 98, 1 through 3, one more time. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. He's done such marvelous things. Well, what has he done? We could ask the psalmist. What marvelous things do we want to sing to him about? His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. In other words, the praise here in Psalm 98 is not abstract praise, it's concrete. He's praising God because God has remembered his covenant with his people. He's remembered himself. I've given myself to these people, and I cannot forget them because I cannot forget myself. And what does the psalmist do in response to that? He erupts in praise. The Lord has made known his salvation. He's revealed his righteousness, his saving action in the sight of all the nations. He's remembered his steadfast love and his faithfulness. And all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So what do we do in response to that? Listen to how the psalmist continues. So make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous songs and sing praise. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre. With the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the king, before the Lord. May I read you one more psalm, psalm of praise. Psalm 103, just a few pages over from Psalm 98. Listen to the psalmist. Bless the Lord, O my soul. I love this. The psalmist is having an internal conversation with himself. He's talking to himself. Bless the Lord, soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. What a great reminder. Don't forget the benefits of the Lord that he's given to you. In the midst of all of the vicissitudes of life, don't forget his benefits. Well, what benefits are we talking about in particular Verse 3, because he forgives all your iniquities. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's wings. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Verse 8, the Lord is merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love. He removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. 
And in one of my favorite lines from the Psalms, verse 14, it says, and he remembers our frame. He knows we're just dust. He put us together. He knows who we really are. Our days are like grass, the psalmist says. But the steadfast love of the Lord remains forever. So why does all my soul sing and praise to the Lord? Because he forgives our sins. Because God is slow to anger. Because he's removed our sins as far as the east is from the west in the death and resurrection of his son. And because he knows that we're just dust. Because our God is love. And he shows love to sinners. Yes, we thank him for all the goods in this life. But above all, for the inestimable love and the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ. As I was preparing for this this morning, thinking through these psalms, childhood memory came back. Maybe this has happened to you before. A childhood chorus from my Sunday school day, days came back and I just, it just haunted me all morning. And I was humming it. Praise him, praise him. All ye little children, God is love, God is love. Praise him, praise him, all ye little children, God is love, God is love. And when the psalmist hears this simple children's chorus, he says, Amen and Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.